from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people, credit union ideas. Having women in leadership roles isn't just the right thing to do. It's good for the bottom line, says Jeffrey Halter, author and self-described gender strategist. Halter helps companies create integrated end-to-end plans to advance and advocate for women in the workplace. This will become increasingly important as low unemployment rates continue and the war for talent intensifies. I'm Bill Merrick, Deputy Editor for Credit Union Magazine and CUNA News. In this episode of the CUNA News Podcast, Halter discusses subtle workplace behaviors that inhibit women's advancements, the components of an inclusive workplace, and why it's time for men to become vocal advocates for women in the workplace. Halter will address the 2018 America's Credit Union Conference later this month in Boston. How do people respond when you tell them you're an advocate for women in the workplace? So I think the biggest one is understanding the context of the situation. Most of my work is done with corporate America. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a business consultant first and a gender advocate second. And so the, the initial reaction I get, particularly from a lot of women, is, okay, what can, why is this guy here? And certainly, what is he going to say about women's leadership without being a mansplainer? Uh, men are often curious to kind of, uh, you know, gosh, I don't know, you know, why we're even having this conversation. And uh, over the course of typically a keynote event, we uh, are convinced them around the business case of why this is important, why best-in-class companies need to do this today, and then move them from a conceptual understanding of, of why this is important to an operating business reality. Because, you know, quite frankly, most business leaders today carry an idea that advocating for women is a good idea but they don't know what to do or what it looks like when I'm doing it on a daily basis. And so that's the approach that I take. It's more organizationally. And then I always close with the fact that, you know, really as long as men are 85% of senior leadership today, we're 85% of the solution. Um, and, And women can do all the talking to each other that they want they're just not going to drive as much change as we can drive collectively. So first off, could you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into this line of work? Yeah, certainly. And and if you had told me 15 years ago, this is what I'd be doing, I would have laughed at you. I'm a, I'm a career sales guy, uh, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, sales, sales manager. I've called on many of the major retailers in the country. And, uh, Around 2000, uh, the company I was working for had a uh, $200 million discrimination lawsuit. And uh, at that time, I was working in sales training as a certified sales trainer. And literally overnight, I got put in charge of the the diversity education initiative. And uh, it wasn't a very good program. Uh, I'll be completely honest. I inherited it. And uh, I sat in class every day. I heard stories of things I did not know were happening in my company. And I'd been there for a long time. I heard stories of racism and sexism and homophobia. I had what they call a white male epiphany. 
and a white male epiphany occurs when you realize what white male privilege is. And so I just chose to get curious. I, I chose to start asking questions of people. I chose to deepen my knowledge. Um, this was around the time Tom Peters was doing a lot of work where I reimagined. And he talked about the coming war for talent, the fact that women buy everything in this country, and that companies really need to see the business value of diversity and inclusion rather than the soft skills side of it. Mm -hmm. And so that started me getting really passionate about this work. Uh, I wrote my first book in uh, uh, the mid-2000s called Selling the Men, Selling the Women, which was really just teaching men how to sell to women uh, and, and applying the common gender communication things that we all know about today, but no one had ever taught men this, and particularly salesmen who want to get better, make more money. And so that started me doing more and more research around women, and then uh, seven years ago, I launched my own company, which, which helps companies develop strategies around diversity and inclusion with a primary focus on women. And then um, the other half of my work is finding ready-now men to train and lift up in organizations to become advocates. So you're a gender strategist. What does that entail? Yes, <laughs> yes that's a term that I created. I believe I'm the only one in the country what it means is, you know, it, it's funny. If you think about the way we approach women's leadership advancement today uh, as, as an importance, many times it's relegated to human resources. Many times it's relegated to an employee resource group. It's not given the strategic value that it needs to be, the way you would approach a new acquisition, a merger, a brand introduction. You know, if you think about those from a business standpoint, you know, there's a real rigor and process, a SWOT analysis, a competitive assessment that's done to help you build a three-year operating plan uh, with scorecards, measures, and metrics. That's how you hold people accountable. That's what I do. I help companies create really tightly linked, integrated end-to-end -end plans to advance and advocate for women. And uh, there are, you know, today there's, there's probably 50 companies in the Fortune 500 that are really doing an exceptional job of this. Go out to Diversity, Inc. and look at their top 50 lists. Or NAFI, the National Association of Female Executives, publishes a list. But by and large... You know, most companies have not realized this is an issue. And the challenge is there's a war for talent going on right now that people just don't realize. And they're really feeling the pain. And it's, and it's starting to come to a head. Do you think the Me Too movement has made this more prevalent too? You know, it certainly made it more challenging, right? Um, you know, my belief at the end of the day is we actually have to start to talk about gender, because men and women are having different experiences in the workplace. And the Me Too movement has really caused a lot of men question, you know, um, have I, can I even say anything? Uh, what I will tell you is smart companies, best-in-class companies, are actually, you know, using this as an opportunity to create 
dialogue. And there's a great initiative called Mentor Her, hashtag Mentor Her. And companies like Sodexo and Disney have signed an accord that says, no, we're going to use this as an opportunity to talk about what's going on. Because quite frankly, you know, 99% of men haven't done anything wrong. There, there is a 1% out there, hopefully less than that, that do exhibit elements of a hostile workplace, that, that do exhibit a sexual harassment. But I think, by and large, most men um, just want to go to work and, and be good colleagues and peers. And I can tell you unequivocally, having spoken to thousands of women this year, no woman wants to go to work and be exposed to sexual harassment. This notion that, you know, we, we can't have meetings behind closed doors because then it becomes a he said, she said. There isn't a single woman in this country who, who, who wants to go through that because, you know, right now it's a lose-lose for women. Are there certain behaviors that maybe aren't overtly considered harassment but are harmful? You know, here's what it boils down to, and, and, and thank you for bringing that up because it is really, really powerful. What it looks like today is just the simple fact that men and women are having different experiences in the workplace that men don't realize. I have a client with a big pharma company. I was in a room with 60 women who all had their PhDs. Some had multiple PhDs, patents, um, just brilliant, brilliant women. And I asked a simple question, what are the biases in your workplace? And they talked for 45 minutes. These are women at the top of their game. And they said things like, my research is checked more frequently than men. I'm talked over routinely in meetings. My ideas are dismissed. I'm expected to clean the lab more frequently than my male peers. I'm expected to take notes. And basically, I'm treated like a second-class citizen, even though I'm the senior scientist on this team. Now, what I'll tell you is, that may not sound overt um, if it happens once a week to women. The problem is it's happening five to ten times a day. And women know it when they feel it, and men are completely unaware of it. And so it just builds up over time. So it's funny. I was doing work with another biotech company, and I told this story, and there was a male scientist there. And he called me three weeks after our session. He said, Jeff, I want you to know I didn't believe a word you said. I'm a scientist. I want data. And he said, in my staff meeting, I started to keep a tally sheet of every time a woman's voice was talked over, her ideas stolen or ignored. And when I got to 50, I knew I had a problem. And we now have new rules for staff meetings. And so that's the kind of thing it's death by a thousand cuts for women, and men aren't even aware that it's happening. So it's not 1980s madmen. It's today it's very, very subtle, but it's consistent, and it happens every day. How do you make men aware of their behavior? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge advocate in starting with the men who are ready to be advocates and allies. And we know who those people are. They're the good guys in the workplace. We know men who have a strong sense of fairness. They, they wear integrity on their sleeve. There are, there are men who are sponsors already or mentors for women. 
they encourage women to apply for positions. And, uh, and, and what we need to do is invite them into this conversation and move them just from being a quiet ally to a passionate advocate. Because you and I can, can say positive things about women and we're seen as good guys. But if Mary tries to promote a woman in her group, well, you know, our, our very unconscious bias is to say, well, you know, she's only doing that because she's pushing her women's agenda. And so that's where it's critical for men to become vocal advocates. And I believe 30% of men are ready to do it. We, men and women, have to invite them into this conversation. And then we can get another 50%. And then we can get, you know, that last hardcore 20%. What are the components of a inclusive workplace and the components of a diversity program? You know, it, it's really changed over the years. My belief in the work that I do says that the business needs to own your diversity and inclusion strategy. Um, it can't be owned by the Office of Diversity. It can't be owned by HR. It has to be owned by P&L functions, whether that's marketing, supply chain, operations, sales, because this is a huge miss for companies because they don't equate women with revenue growth, which is absolutely silly because women consume 83% of everything sold in America. Women are $7 trillion in purchasing power to the economy. And their influencing ability goes far beyond that of their purchasing ability. And so we'll take one major industry, the car industry, as an example. Well, women routinely rate the car buying experience as horrific, yet women buy or influence 70% of cars sold in this country. 60% of women say car marketers don't understand them and their needs. And it's funny, I tell this story, and it routinely gets standing ovations at, uh, at my event. But in 125 years, car manufacturers have never figured out what to do with a woman's purse. Because every woman you know puts her purse on the passenger side seat, and when she hits the brakes, it goes flying all over the car. If car manufacturers really understood that women were 70% of the influencers and purchasers of cars, they would redesign the showroom experience. They would redesign the marketing experience. And that's just one example. So this notion of getting more people in the business to own this, that allows women then to move into P&L roles in operations, in supply chain, in in sales and marketing, uh, because we know women tend to be very clustered in staff functions. Another great example of this is IBM. IBM is moving 5,000 women into sales roles because they know the buying desk is changing in IT. There are many more women sitting on the buying desk. IBM's not just hiring a bunch of women. They're taking women from their back-of-house staff functions and moving them into customer-facing roles. And they're setting them up for success with a two-year orientation program. So they're not just moving women into sales because we know that's going to fail. They're supporting them and changing the culture 
because there's a business imperative that says our customers look different today. And so that's one of the big shifts. And then the second thing is, you know, we track and measure everything we can in business, um, from office supplies, petroleum, et cetera. Yet companies are very hesitant to set goals around we need to move women into 35% of sales roles or 50% of senior leadership roles because, you know, it, it looks like tokenism when, in fact, smart companies set hard goals. And tokenism is not accepted because if a woman is not ready, if she has not been trained and has the skill set to be ready to move up, you would then hold the manager accountable, many times a man, for not having her ready. So, so those are two of the best-in-class practices. Do you have any thoughts on how credit unions can make their facilities and, and websites and services more female-friendly? Yeah, you know, that's a fascinating one. Um, you know, when it comes to retail banking, as an example, um, I've seen a statistic that women make 89% of the retail banking decisions for their family and for themselves. Uh, and I've also seen statistics that, you know, millennials aren't even aware of what credit unions are and how to use and leverage them. And so what's fascinating to me is these two groups, millennials and women, really would value what credit unions bring because they're genuine, they're authentic, they are owned by the members. And, and so credit unions should be an easy sell to women. And what I would advocate is, you know, go and ask your customers how you can make your credit union experience much more user-friendly for women. And, you know, just the, the little bit of research I've done in your industry you know, the significant ranks of many roles in credit unions are actually held by women with the exception of the senior level ranks. And, and what I would tell you is, you know, there is an absolute need right now for companies to right now promote and take risks on high profile women. Because there's one trend that's going on that you cannot ignore. That is 10,000 boomers a day largely old white men are leaving the workplace every day, every year for the next seven years until we're all gone. And when you look at what the average age and gender and race is of the heads of the credit unions around the country, well, they tend to be older white men. And so what is the succession plan? Because seven years is going to fly by. So I don't know that it's just a marketing initiative as much as it is a total enterprise realignment around realizing who your customer is. And your customer today are either millennials or women. Uh, your, your second book, Why Women, mentions male gender fatigue. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by this? Yeah, this is a, this has been a, a challenge and it's kind of, you know, we're, we're a victim of our own success. What it says is leaders look around the company, leaders, primarily men, look around the company, see a lot of women, and think women have made good progress. Male leader gender fatigue or corporate fatigue is based on research from the sponsor effect. And it says that 56% of women, 
56% of men versus 39% of women think women have made considerable progress in the last 10 years. And it's because they look and see a lot of women. What they don't realize is women are in staff functions that aren't going anywhere. They're, they're stuck in middle management. We really don't have women in the roles that are grooming them for executive leadership. So that's where, you know, we've got to define who's leading key organizational units and what is that progress up to becoming a president of a credit union. And so are we taking high-profile bets on, on smart women to move them up that pipeline? What do you see as the, the top barrier for women in reaching the C-suite, and how can they break through that barrier? Yeah, well, you know, I, I would love to say there's one thing, um, and there's really not. Women's leadership advancement today is, is a combination of 10 to 15 things that you've got to solve, everything from workplace uh, programs and processes around paternity care, flexibility, you know, the, the big challenge today is no longer recruitment. We can get women in. The challenge is retention. And then how do we keep them and how do we move them forward? Uh, a lot of it is a lack of sponsorship. Um, just the fact that human nature says we are going to promote people like ourselves. And so a lack of mentoring and a lack of sponsorship is one of the big challenges just even recognizing that there's an issue. You know, one of the things I've done with a client is put up the pictures of the current leadership of your uh, credit union and then put up the physical picture of the next two people down who are the logical successors. And my guess is you're going to see a lot of male faces looking back at you. And it sounds so simple, but just this visual representation becomes very powerful. And so succession planning becomes yet another one. And then I think the last one is, you know, how do we get more women on boards? Because there's a lot of research that demonstrates companies with more women on boards not only create better business results, tangible business results, but also create organizations top to bottom that ask questions around, why don't we have more women? So, so, so I think it's not just one thing. I, I think it's a series of a number of different factors. And uh, you'll be addressing the America's Credit Union Conference fairly soon in Boston. What's one message you want uh, conference attendees to take away from your presentation? Yeah, you know, thank you for that. Uh, I would say come in curious. Come in curious. Uh, you know, I'm going to talk about uh, you know, how we can get better at having conversations. Because my belief is, you know, the, the way we are going to start to drive change is to be curious and just come in with this notion that, you know, I, I just need to acknowledge that people are having different experiences than I am. And the second thing is just realizing that pace of change is so significant today that valuing diversity and inclusion and gender is just now one of the necessary skills of becoming a leader. You know, it's interesting what, you know, you and I grew up in an era when it was pretty easy to be a, a leader, right? We just treated everybody the same. And we didn't have 
something strapped to our waist called, a, called an iPhone where we were on 24-7. You know, that just doesn't reflect reality today. Today, you're on 24-7. You have to be willing to embrace new ideas, new leadership strategies, because the workforce looks significantly different than the workforce we grew up with. And so it's incumbent on leaders to have to choose change the way they're leading today. And it is much harder uh, than it was in the past. And that's just, that's just the price of leadership today. You know, I think the other thing is I would actually encourage attendees uh, to go out to my website, www.theletterywomen.biz. I have a, a number of different pre-reads that you can do before you come to the event. But I also have a tool called the Male Advocacy Profile. And it's just a quick 20-point assessment for men to take. I also have a, a gender advocacy profile for women to take. But what it does is you answer 10 questions on how you think about gender equity, and then you answer 10 questions on the actions you actually take. Because even well-intended men think about gender equity more often than actually demonstrating it. And so uh, that's going to be one of our uh, suggestions that we send out with, uh, uh, with the, uh, as a reminder uh, for the event. But I think that can be very powerful in helping you to really come in with a, an open mind around how you become a better advocate for advancing women. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.